whenever we're working hard at something, whenever we're struggling to become better at something, I'm sure we all stop to ask the question, is this really worth it? Right? When we see great athletes or great artists or anyone who's accomplished something great, we know they've worked hundreds and thousands of hours to perfect that craft or that art. And in the Christian life, in an even more serious way, it's a struggle, right? Christianity following Jesus is very, very challenging. It comes with all sorts of burdens. It comes with all sorts of sacrifices. And I'm sure we ask the question often, is it worth it to follow Jesus? And the Bible gives us answers to that question. It doesn't shy away from addressing that question. It doesn't just call us to do the right thing. It also shows us that following God, following Christ, leads to absolute unbridled joy and eternal pleasures. And so we're going to look at Psalm 16 today. Psalm 16 is one of the most beautiful and underrated psalms, in my opinion. It's, It's a perfect psalm on the heels of Psalm 15, right? Psalm 15 was talking about the kind of life that has to be lived in order to worship God. And we saw, obviously, this points to Jesus, who's the only one who lived that life perfectly. But the the question would be, following that psalm, is, is that kind of life worth it? Is it worth it to live a life of that kind of dedication and sacrifice to God? And Psalm 16 gives us the answer. See, David's aware there's a danger. So he's preemptively setting his heart and mind on the confidence he has in God. So we see it. The, the psalm, it starts with a, a miktam of David. We don't know what that word miktam means, as so many of these headings. Um, but just wanted to make sure you knew that. that there's different interpretations possible. We just don't know what it is. And as we look at the psalm, really, we can kind of divide the psalm in half. So my outline is taken from Derek Kidner, sort of an adaptation of his outline. And this is how I'll divide it. Verses 1 through 6 is the faithful servant. Verses 7 to 11 is the faithful Lord. So let's just dive right in to verses 1 to 16, the faithful servant. The faithful servant. Look at verse 1. Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. It starts with this very simple plea to God, right? Very common plea to God. He's looking for God to be his refuge. And we'll see more of this in Psalm 18. He needs preservation. That word preserve is the word for guarding or watching or keeping something. So there's clearly some danger that he needs to be guarded from and preserved from. But what is it? Well, a few things indicate possibilities in this, in this passage. In verse 4, we see idolatry is in view. So maybe the danger here that he needs shelter from is the temptation of idolatry. Or in verse 10, it seems that death is in view. So maybe he's asking God to protect from death, or maybe it's a combination of both. I think he's seeing some danger ahead and is preparing for it and fixing his thoughts on God. So David understands where his security lies. It's in God. And then he also sees where his welfare lies. So verse 1 is his security. Verse 2 is his welfare. Verse 2, I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. This is such a simple and beautiful and profound statement. I love it so much. There's no good apart from God. God is the one who is the source of good. He's the definition of good. And therefore, all goodness flows from him. You can't have any good thing apart from the source of goodness. Psalm 119.68 has this incredibly, again, simple and profound statement. 
where it says, you are good and do good. So the psalmist is speaking to to God, and he's saying, you are good and do good. And many theologians have pointed to this passage as encapsulating something about how the attributes of God work, that what God does is, is so in line with who he is. There's no, there's no division between that. God is so unified, <clears throat> he's so consistent, that his goodness and his character flows into actions in history. He is good and he does good. So in order to find goodness, you have to come to God. It reminds me too of Mark 10, 18, where Jesus, speaking to the rich young ruler, asks him, right, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. So even Jesus, his definition of goodness comes back to God by definition. And so David here understands that there's nothing good apart from God. Now he's going to talk about idolatry here, but this statement, before he gets to verse 4, talking about idolatry, this statement is the antidote to idolatry. This is the way to avoid idolatry, because idolatry is when we take something good and we put it in the place of God. We replace God with this thing, with this created thing of some kind, right? Because we think the good gifts that God has given to us are superior to God, the very giver of the gifts. But this statement is an answer to that. It's a way to prevent idolatry. It's reminding ourselves that everything we have is from God and points us back to God. So a profound, simple statement and a great verse to memorize and to meditate on. Look at verse 3. As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. So the, the psalmist has shown his securities in God, his welfare is in God, and now he's speaking to his associations. Who are the people that he associates with? Well, here he says it's the saints. These are the holy ones. This term is used primarily in the Bible of angels. So holy ones is used of angels, which is why he specifies the holy ones in the land, meaning saints, meaning humans. Just like we saw in Psalm 15, 4, we see David's alignment with righteous people. His loyalty and his association is with those who delight in and follow after God. So look at verse 4. He says, The sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out or take their names on my lips. So he knows where his security lies. He knows where his good is found. He knows who he wants to associate with. And here he's speaking about worship, specifically false worship. He's reminding himself of what happens to those who seek after false gods. The the word God here is actually not in the original, but I think it's the right understanding of the passage. It's kind of inferred from the context. So he's saying, don't worship other false gods. And what what happens, right? Why why shouldn't you follow after their gods? Well, what's the result of following after idols or false gods? Well, it's that your sorrows will multiply. That's what he's saying here. Your sorrows will multiply. This is the same language that's used of in the curse um, that's, that's given to Adam and Eve after the fall. In Genesis 3, 16, God says, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. Multiply sorrows. Same words, same idea, right? You're going to have more misery, more pain. So the image here is, is very intense. It has a history in the, the Bible, in Israel. And so he's using this to say in the same way that Adam and Eve were under this curse, that caused all this pain and childbearing, so the sorrows of those who go after another god will multiply. It's going, they're going to be miserable because of this. 
the natural consequences of idolatry is that it gives you the opposite of everything you're looking for. All the satisfaction, all the hope, all the joy that you want, you'll get the opposite from chasing after things that are less than God. So David's resolved not to engage in false worship, right? He says, I will not pour out these drink offerings. I will not. There's a resolve here. Um, The drink offerings refer to probably the blood of the sacrifices that were poured out, which may also have been drunk in this act of sacrifice in, in pagan rituals is what I'm speaking of. So in these false gods, they might have drunk from this blood offering that was then poured on the altar. And so he's saying, I'm not going to participate in that. I'm not going to take the names of these false gods on my lips. I'm not going to call out to them and find any sort of hope or practice any sort of rites or rituals with these false gods. Verse 5, he says, The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. Then he remembers here where his ambitions lie. He's seeing everything as being found in God himself, even his ambition. So this mention of chosen portion, or uh, it really could mean heritage or allotted portion, it's a share that's assigned to you. So it kind of sounds like he's saying he chose this, but really it's it's allotted to you, it's given to you. Um, the cup here, it's hard to know what he's referring to exactly, but the metaphor seems to be in contrast with those who who drink the sacrifice of these pagan gods. And so he's saying, I'm going to find, I'm going to partake of God and nothing else. But these words, chosen portion, lot, which means like an allotment, these words and the following verses have similar words. They refer to the division of the land in the book of Joshua. So if you remember Joshua, the the book takes place after the entrance into the promised land and they, they conquer the land. And then in the end of the book, there's this very long section. Honestly, it's, it's very boring right, for most people where they divide the land and they lay out the boundaries of the land. So that's the context here. And, and one of the things that's interesting about this division of the land is that every tribe was given an allotment or a portion except for the Levites. So the Levitical tribe, they were the, the priests of Israel. And so God says to them in Numbers 18, 20, He says to Aaron, you shall have no inheritance in the land, neither shall you have any portion among them. I am your portion and your inheritance among the people of Israel. So in this allotment, the the priests didn't get anything. But really, what this was pointing to is that they had something much better. But their allotment, their portion was God himself. You know, I I was thinking as I was reading this passage, I was thinking of this quote from C.S. Lewis, which I love, where he says, he who has God and everything else has no more than he who has God only. In other words, when you have God, you have everything. You have everything, right? So even the person who has in this life has piled up wealth and health and all these things. They don't have anything more than the person who just has God. Ultimate wealth and satisfaction is found in him. Even if David has nothing else, if he has God, he can be satisfied. Reminds me too of Philippians 3.8, where Paul says, Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. So that the chosen portion, the lot, is God himself. And he builds on that that thought in verse 6. Verse 6 says, the lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. 
So again, this this kind of the lines, he's speaking about the dividing lines in different allotments of land. And he's looking back again to Joshua, and he's saying that God has given him this beautiful place, that the inheritance he has from God is perfect. You know, when they came into the land of Canaan, there was a there was a temptation to actually see their satisfaction or their hope as coming from the gods of that land. Every every area had different gods, and they believed that their gods were regionally in control of certain areas. And so when Israel came to the land, there was a temptation to bow down to those gods. Or there was a temptation to think that the land itself was the most important thing. In other words, there were many temptations to idolatry in one form or another. But here, David shows that his hope is in God himself. Using this, using this metaphor of dividing of the lines of this, this beautiful inheritance, he's not speaking about his physical inheritance. He's saying that Yahweh is the inheritance that he has, that Yahweh is the one that he puts his hope in. And what could be more pleasant or more beautiful than God himself? So David shows himself to be a faithful servant. His mindset is correct. He's placing all of his hope and his joy and his worship on Yahweh. And then we see in the second half of the, of the passage, we see the faithful Lord. So verses 7 to 11, we see the faithful Lord. So David has spoken of what he, how he trusts in God, and then he's going to speak about what God does for him or how God responds or who God is. Look at verses 7 and 8. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night also my heart instructs me. I have set the Lord always before me. Because he is at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. Here he shows that God gives guidance and stability. So because he's trusting in God fully, God is going to guide him and anchor him and give him stability. Verse 7 points to that idea of guidance. God gives him counsel and instructs his heart is the idea of this verse. So that word instructs could mean chasten or discipline. It kind of refers to someone teaching someone to to face hard truths. So it's sort of a realigning of the heart. God's instructing him, and he's changing the way that he thinks even in the night. So God is guiding him, and then God gives him stability. That's in verse 8. He's obedient to God, and so God is with him, and he's at God's right hand. He's at God's right hand. So that's the place of power, and God is strengthening him. He's going to use that phrase right hand again at the very end of this passage in verse 11. But that's the place of power. So God is keeping him stable. God's also giving him security in verse 9. And God gives resurrection in verse 10. Verse 10 says, For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. So David has confidence that God will rescue him even from the grave. So it's clear that death is in view here, right? When he's saying being in Sheol, that's the place of the dead. So he's saying, even if I'm dead, you're not going to abandon my soul there. You're not going to let me see corruption. You're not going to let me decay. And so David understands that God has a plan even beyond death itself, that God's going to bring resurrection one day. And this, this verse here, or this section of verses, is used in, uh, by Peter in his Pentecost sermon to point to the resurrection hope that's found in Jesus. So Peter's going to take these words from Psalm 16 and apply them to Jesus in his resurrection. Look, look at, listen to Acts chapter 2. So in the previous verses, verses I think 26 to 28, he quotes extensively from Psalm 16, 
which is a very important psalm in the scriptures. And then he says in Acts 2.29, he says, Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God has sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on the throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned in Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. So essentially what Peter's saying here is, I, I guarantee you, David is is rotting in the grave, right? His his body has seen corruption. He has decayed. So he's saying this isn't just speaking about David. This is speaking about something greater than David, someone who's the greater king that's going to fulfill what David was supposed to be. And so he points to Jesus himself and says, it's through Jesus that this text is realized. And it's through Jesus and his resurrection that David himself has hope that God will not abandon his soul forever, that he's going to be resurrected one day because his son, who's also his Lord, right? See Psalm 110, has been raised to life and has given through his resurrection hope to every person who trusts in him. So it's amazing to see these promises foreshadowed in the Old Testament through the words of David himself. So God gives resurrection. God gives hope beyond the grave. And God gives eternal pleasure. Look at verse 11. I love this. I love this verse. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. So God makes known the path of life. In other words, he guides us to eternal life. But really, that path of life begins now. We've seen this over and over in the Psalms, starting with Psalm 1, that there's two paths, right? So you you can begin to walk in everlasting life and experience true everlasting life right now. But there's hope even beyond that. So he, he says, God gives complete satisfaction. So complete satisfaction, fullness of joy is the phrase there. So it's full, it's complete, it's rounded out, right? It fills him up, but it's also never-ending satisfaction. It's also pleasures forevermore. So it's full and it's forever. That's the kind of joy, the kind of satisfaction that God gives through his son, Jesus Christ. So all this points us to the fact that it's worth it to follow God. The Bible doesn't, doesn't hide these things from us, that there is eternal satisfaction and joy and resurrection and life and protection found in following God. And so I love these words, how encouraging they are, how much they build us up to see that faithfully following God leads us to experiencing all the joys that come from him. It is worth it. So let me just give a few practical thoughts before we end. Um, The first thing I would say is that the godly person is always a blessed and joyful person. Godly people are happy people. It's, it's almost universally true from my experience. I don't mean they have worldly blessings necessarily, like wealth and health. That's, that's not necessarily promised in Scripture. But godly people understand just how blessed they are, and they rejoice in that, and they tend to focus on that. And, and in light of that, it's important to focus our hearts on the right things. David has a lot of things that he, he brings to God in the Psalms, Right? But one of the things he's constantly coming back to and focusing on is what God has done for him. So he's lifting up his burdens, yes, but he's focusing on the blessings and the goodness and the satisfaction that's found in God. So here David sets his sights on the goodness of God, the many blessings God gives, the resurrection, the satisfaction, all those things. 
He's setting his sights and focusing on that. This psalm also reminds me that, you, that we need God's help every minute of every day. We need God's constant protection. We need God in small ways and in big ways and in ways that we can't even comprehend. So let's constantly be calling out to him and asking for his help. It's also on a kind of a negative standpoint from this psalm. It's impossible to overstate just how destructive idolatry is. So yes, the, the psalm shows us how much goodness and joy there is in God, but it also points us to how much destruction there is in idolatry. Whenever we make something that God's created, something that's less than God, and we pretend that it's greater than God or more important than God in our lives, it, it leads to destruction. John Calvin said that we are idol factories. Our hearts are idol factories, and that's true. We're constantly finding things to worship other than God. And so it's so important that we, that we not forget how empty idolatry is, and that we turn away from it to, toward the one who gives fullness and forever joy. And the Bible's full of examples of the destruction of idolatry. And the last thing is that depending on God never ultimately disappoints. That we can see in the stories of Scripture how God always delivers on his promises. And we can trust in him knowing that he will give to us what we most desperately need in the end.